Hello and welcome to the Vorthos Cast. I'm Janelli, and I hid away the ancient Jeskai lore in a secret mountain library. My name's Andrew Weissel, and I carved the history of the Teemer frontier in Scrimshaw artifacts hidden in a cave near the crucible of the Spirit Dragon. And I'm Carrie Thomas, and I hope you guys both tagged your ancient lore as Meme TG, or else we won't be able to find them. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so this week we don't have any news to share. The weekly MTG Twitch show did not air in favor of the Silver Showcase that's happening at Gen Con, right? I believe so. The Silver Showcase is at the Pro Tour. Gen Con will have an anniversary draft. I think it's doing another beta draft. I don't know. We're a Vortho show. <laughs> so they put Gen Con and PT25 on the same weekend. Is yes. the TLDR. <laughs> Instead, we're going to dive into our mailbag and start off with a question that <laughs> we have bumped from like, I want to say like six podcasts at this point. That sounds about right. So why don't you go ahead and get to it, Andrew? First question comes from Miguel Cruz 2011 on Twitter who is asking about the history of the Slivers. Slivers have shown up four times in Magic history. He first met them on the artificial Frexian Plane of Wrath. The Evancar who ruled the plane Volrath had kidnapped a bunch of species from across the multiverse because he liked tinkering with types of life. He took an interest in the Slivers because they are shapeshifters like himself. Volrath was interested in how the Slivers worked as a hive mind, and asserted his willpower over them using these things called hive stones, and then infiltrated their ranks with artifacts called metallic slivers that he created to basically keep an eye on them. He kidnapped the sliver queen and stashed her and her kin down in the stronghold in the furnace of wrath, the magmatic underbelly of the fortress. After he stole the piece of the legacy, he hid them there, and then Karn showed up and reasoned with the Sliver Queen and got the legacy back. You know, if you want to thank anyone for the defeat of Yawgmoth, thank the Sliver Queen. The Slivers went extinct during the Wrathy Overlay. The entire plane, using a magical substance called Flowstone, just kind of slid through the Blind Eternities and ended up on top of Dominaria. Because the Slivers lived in the volcanic underbelly of the Stronghold, when that fortress phased into an Urborg volcano, all the Slivers got roasty toasty dead. A <laughs> hundred years after the Frexian invasion, during the Onslaught block, the set legions in particular, there was a group of scientists called the Riptide Project off the coast of Otaria who were trying to revive species that had become extinct during the Frexian invasion. A trip to Urborg brought back some sliver fossils. And they said, hey, this is neat. We'll do this thing. And then they said, oh, wow, slivers are really neat. We should do some experiments on them. <laughs> Lots of fun science to be done here. And as things go in such situations, the slivers went totally out of control, broke free of the Riptide Project's constraints, started overrunning Otaria, evolved far more rapidly than anybody could imagine. They got mutated by the Marari, that's where the Sliver Overlord came from, who has not had an on-screen death, so it might actually still be out there. 200 years later, Time Spiral returns to Dominaria, and as the entire plane, devoid of mana, starts to die, the Slivers are doing just fine, because they are very good at surviving under extreme environmental duress. They have spread across pretty much the entire plane, they show up in Urborg, they show up in Sky Shroud, which plopped down next to Keld during the Wrathy Overlay, and Freyalise exerts her Planeswalker influence over the Slivers there. Benalia is having a hard time repelling them. It's basically a mess. They're just everywhere. They're still mutating. They're doing all kinds of things. And most importantly, they are evolving beyond the need for a central hive mind. So that's where the card Sliver Legion, the legendary sliver from Future Sight, matters. Because the slivers on Dominaria are now totally free of any outside influence, which is very scary. As we learned in Dominaria the set that we just had, 
after the menning, mana flowed into the plane and healed it very, very quickly. So empires like Benalia and Keld that had been struggling fighting the slivers were rejuvenated and we didn't see any in Dominaria because the assumption is the slivers have mostly been pushed back and they're probably also mostly still just on Otaria, which is a pretty ragged wasteland now. And then the fourth appearance of the Slivers was on the plane of Chandelar in Magic 2014 and Magic 2015, where they appear in a hive called the Skep. We know about them mostly from a guidebook written by Hastrick, who is a scout from Thune, which is a white-aligned kingdom on Chandelar. He got lost and encountered the Slivers, and they shapeshift in slightly different ways than... The Dominarian Slivers, they have more tentacled appearances, and they also have these bony plates that can shift around their bodies, and their evolutionary paths are a lot more stratified. They have the basic Slivers, which are the Thrums. They have animalistic Slivers, which are called Predators. Then they have humanoid Slivers that are called Primes. They all serve the Sliver Hive Lord, which Hastrick posits is the initial Sliver that existed on Chandelar. We don't know if they're native to the plane or if they were brought there. I have ideas about that that I'm not going to get into right now. But they're a population that is unique to the Dominarian strain, and that's the Slivers. Our next question or questions come from Bugberry91 on Twitter. Has there been a discussion on how characters in the story see the five colors? Are they aware of the color pie like we are to any extent? People brought up Lord Windgrace specifically using green and black mana in the Planar Chaos novel. And then, as a follow-up, I've always wondered how characters see the five colors, as in, are they aware of the color wheel and how the colors of mana are tied to concepts like red with emotion and white with justice? So the simple answer is, it really depends. Advanced wizards generally do have a good understanding of what's generally referred to as like color theory. Many civilizations aren't, so like if you didn't have a formal magical training, you might just think, you know, your magic comes from the land. Like if you were a druid, you might think your your magic just comes from nature and you wouldn't think about it any farther than that. In general, in universe, they don't think of each other as a white mage or a red mage, but instead the specific kind of magic they use. So no one would think of Gideon as a white mage, they would think of him as a hieromancer. No one would think of Chandra or Jaya as red mages, they would think of them generally as pyromancers. And so while they have a concept of the colors, it's generally you're thought of more in how you use magic. Although, I mean, it really varies all along the spectrum, from people having no idea what the color is to a very clear color theory. And it was also a lot more common in the past than it has been any time recently. Jay, you've read a lot of the older novels where it explicitly states, like, the colors of magic as they appear. Yeah, and, like, the colors of individual people. Yeah, which is a little strange. (laughs) But, I mean, the only recent reference we've had to it was... The Purifying Fire, which it was a plot necessity. The easiest way to say it was that they needed to explain why Gideon and Chandra couldn't leave the Plain of Diridan, which was only allowed to have black magic due to some kind of veil curse that was on the plane. So they recognize each other's, I believe, as red and white magic, and then say like, oh, you can only use swamps here. That fuels their journey to track down the person who is kind of maintaining the veil on the plane so that they can kill him and planes walk away. They end up doing that, but it was the only time it's been explicitly referenced post-mending and for good reason, because they had a really cool idea, which was making this plane cut off from all but one color of magic, and it wasn't really workable without explaining that they were a white mage and a red mage. The source of the colors of mana is often referred to more. So, like, it would be the magic of, like, the forest, or, you know, the pyromancers on Ragatha are well aware that their magic comes from the mountain, even if they don't necessarily all think of it as red mana. Jace comments on that in Agents of Artifice, I believe. He says, like, he's been called to the lake-slash-ocean on Ravnica because it was just something his masters taught him was that, like, 
people like him generally get called to locations like that and like large bodies of water. So it's obviously seated there, but it just depends on how mechanically tied to the card game you want the story to be, <laughs> which can vary by person and by writer. My favorite description of the Five Colors of Magic comes in the short story Falmare from Distant Plains. The Planeswalker Vram explains how mana works and how you use it to cast magic to her daughter, but she describes it as juice that she keeps in her pocket. Yeah, it's a weird story. It, it is a weird story. I really like it because it's an adult having to explain how magic works to a child. Is just a really interesting way to try and organically fit that description into a story. And kind of cute because it's a kid doing this whole thing. Tangentially related real quick. Magic generally has strayed away from having components to your spell or like actual things that contribute to your spell material components is the best way I can put it since it's D&D-ish. You don't have to collect certain things. It's exhausting to write a whole bunch of magic scenes where people are casting spells back and forth, and there's obviously, like, no indicator of what thing is doing what. So, can be confusing, but magic generally just does its best. Our next question comes from Spreewald Fuchs. The question is, give me a four-sentence-ish summary of the Lorwyn Block story, and if it is important. So let's answer the if it is important first. No, no, <laughs> it doesn't matter in the 15 years since it is not important. A lot of people love it a lot. Yeah, that doesn't mean it's a bad story or you shouldn't read it. It's just nothing that happens in Lauren has an impact on anything else in any of magic. Yeah, with the ex the first time it reappeared was Magic Origins, which was like seven years later. And that didn't even factor heavily. All you need to know is that the Great Aurora exists. That's the only thing from the Lorem Black story that mattered in Nissa's origin. So, four-sentence summary, real quick. Una, Queen of the Fae, created the Great Aurora to turn Lorwyn into Shadowmoor. She lost control of it because of the mending, or at least that's what we're told. She created basically a duplicate of an elf to hide her personality away in. I think the name is Marwyn, something like that. Do either of you remember the name? Marilyn. Marilyn, thank you. So the simple story is Marilyn meets up with a number of allies, the sapling of Colfinor, I think Ashling, uh, and one or two others. They are unable to stop the transformation into the Great Aurora, but Marilyn retains her memories, and she ends up reuniting her allies and defeating Una and taking Una's place. And supposedly, Lorwyn became like a balance of Lorwyn and Shadowmoor after that. But we don't really know because we've never seen Lorwyn after the conclusion of the story. Which kind of sounds like a f***ed up plane. Like, just imagine it being like half day and half night. <laughs> that's mind-boggling. <laughs> or it just has a regular day-night cycle. Now. <laughs> yeah, that's the joke. That's the joke, Jay. Day. I'm so slow. I'm so slow. Okay. <laughs> As long as the Noggles are okay, that's all that matters. The next question is also from Spreewald Fuchs. Do you think Nissa will rejoin the Gatewatch? I think membership in the Gatewatch isn't quite as important as people have seemed to think it was. The Gatewatch didn't exist three years ago, and lots of characters still got featured in stories. I think what people really want to know is, do you think Nissa is going to be a main character going forward? And the answer is yes. Absolutely. Whether or not she rejoins the Gatewatch, we'll have to see. Yeah, to your earlier point, I think it was very, very emphasized at its start that these are going to be like the strict main cast that you're going to stick with. So people kind of see like, oh, you either join the Gatewatch or you die. <laughs> but obviously, we've seen characters continue on between blocks, and we'll see Jaya continue on into Ravnica with that kind of model. But this is role. I personally feel will be more antagonistic in the future, which is kind of leaning into a few theories that people have had. But specifically, she ignited with Emrakul. She had a very terrifying experience alongside Tamio in trying to imprison Emrakul, and now she seems to be haunted by some remnant of Emrakul that remains in her mind. So I'm interested in whether they will not revilify her but make her a planeswalker who is more allied with the Eldrazi than, say, Opnixilis was, where he was kind of 
tacitly engaged with them during battle for Zendikar, but he wasn't like encouraging them or leading them across planes. And same thing with Nahiri, it was more of a revenge plot. She wasn't like outside of that one story. She wasn't like controlling them or unleashing them on things specifically. So yeah, I'm excited for the potential Nissa has. And so to note, the origin stories all have very strong thematic or plot importance for the future of characters, and the major presence of Emrakul, and even Lorwyn and the evil elves of Lorwyn of the daytime, I'm comfortable with calling them evil, and that power of Una calling to her might be thematically important going forward. To clarify, Jay, elves that will slaughter beings that they don't think are beautiful are definitely Thank evil. you. Okay, I wasn't sure. <laughs> I, I thought it leaned towards evil, but I hang with a rough crowd, so. <laughs> but yes, Nissa Conduit of Emrakul is a card name I would very much like to see in the future. Our final question today comes from Jason Vorthos. The question is, tell us about your best Vorthos moment during an MTG game. That time you draw that card and you were like, OMG, this is so perfect. I'm about to reenact that event from that story. For me, gosh, I wouldn't say the perfect Vorthos moment isn't necessarily reenacting an event from the story, but getting like a strong Vorthos deck out that just works despite its jankiness. Trying to think of a good example. Do either of you have a good one? I had a deck like that, which was Tefiri, and it was... To Fury extra turns with a whole bunch of artifacts to just power infinite extra turns. So that's something he's ever done in the story, <laughs> but you get those flavorful moments. And then the only other one I had was specifically pulling both of Liliana and a foil Liliana, the last hope, in a pack. And I was like, ooh, I get to play these together. Because A, they're good together, but B, it's also like just a really, really good card. So <laughs> if you've never won a game of Commander, with Kozilek the Great Distortion, while it's powered up by Eldrazi Monument, then you are missing out on some great flavor stuff. <laughs> I have also cast Kozilek the Great Distortion, flashed back Kozilek's return, and controlled the board with the discard counterspell ability and won a game in standard, which was fantastic. I think that was actually one of my first decks that I wanted to build with magic was Awakening Zone Eldrazi Monument so that I could just like pretty much have free indestructible. Those cards just went together pretty flavorfully and I think that's more where you get at with these is finding good story-ish combos or lore compatible combos than actually having sincere moment in the game where I'm like "Ooh, I'm doing this thing from the story. So for me when I got back into magic I tended towards being one of the stronger players amongst my little playgroup, which none of us were particularly good, but I got tired and they got tired of me winning the lion's share of the games. So I started depowering my decks and giving them flavor, like I had a Jace deck where I would try and fit as much Jace art as possible, whether or not the card like really worked in the deck. And so for me, it's more about building that flavorful deck, building the kaiju deck, building the Joda deck that has no planeswalkers because of planeswalkers, all right? That's where my Vorthos MTG moments come from. So let's move on to our story recap for the week, Chronicle of Bolus, A Familiar Stranger. And if you're paying attention to the story, you probably know where this is going. So the story begins, finally, after six episodes, Yasova's hunting party makes it to the crucible of the spirit dragon. Yasova pulls Naiva and Baisha aside and shows them a secret Temur cave, which someone mentioned to me that Kelly Diggs had actually teased in a Dragons of Tarkir piece way back. I forget which actual story it is, but we'll link to it. But it's a secret Temur cave where they keep the memories of their ancestors through carvings on the walls and artifacts in there. It's very cool. It was the story where Sarkin pops back into the present and meets up with Narset. Narsa is on her way to the canyon to seek Timur relics. So Fek, the former Kolagan orc, discovers there's only a single survivor of the hunting tribe that's supposed to be there that ranges around the spirit dragon's remains, that crevasse where the hedrons have popped up, the crucible of the spirit dragon. Yasova, Naiva, and Baisha spy on Fek's meeting with this woman who is 
ostensibly the leader of the hunting party, a pregnant woman, but something feels very off, and Feck signals them to stay back. Yasova goes to confront the survivor, believing it to be someone she might know already, but definitely not the woman who's supposed to be there leading the tribe. The twins she leaves behind in the Temur cave, but Baisha ends up feeling pulled to Ugin's grave, where they find a way to enter into the Hedron. Naiva follows Baisha in, sees her sister unconscious, goes to grab her hand, and falls unconscious as well. And so they're receiving visions, what it seems, directly from Ugin. This is something we had predicted might happen when they got here, is that we finally get to see Ugin's side of this whole story, and what happened after he planeswalked away from Dominaria the first time. Which, by the way, they finally do name-drop Dominaria as the homeworld. Not that it was really contested. But it's always good to have a confirmation in text that's irrefutable. There was a bit of confusion, because the vision begins talking about how Ugin helped to make Tarkir its true self, and starts with almost this creation theory, or creation myth, and then after going through this creation myth revealed through this vision, it then says, or that's what the beings say happened. And it's like, oh, come on, <laughs> you're not going to tell us what really happened? But anyway, Ugin returns to Dominaria and discovers Bolus's empire. I'm trying to remember, did he peek into Bolus's empire last time? He peeks in and sees a temple atop their birth mountain. That's this time, right? Yeah. I was just getting confused. And says, screw my vain brother, I'm going to go off exploring the multiverse. It's also cool because I believe that very flat, still, reflective area. I mean, he flat out brings up it would be great for meditation <laughs> while he's on his way to Dominaria. So I really feel like he also stopped in by the meditation realm there. That maybe Tai Juki discovered the meditation realm, learned of other the existence of other planes through that, because a plane-bound person could travel there if they learned to, to meditate, and then it's later co-opted by Nicol Bolas. We also learn that Ugin travels the multiverse, including to sun-drenched Lorwyn, which is a cool reference, and also pre-sundering Alara with all of its mana in harmony. So we know, at least as of <laughs> 15,000 years ago or so, that Alara had not been sundered yet, or 20,000 years ago or so. It's also neat because he's the only second confirmed Planeswalker visitor to Lorwyn. We mentioned earlier in this episode that Nyssa went there when she ascended, but none of the Lorwyn 5 Planeswalkers from the first Lorwyn set have actually been to Lorwyn, and because it's never appeared in the story, like, no one's been there, but now we know Ugin has, and Nyssa has. Ugin finally returns again to Dominaria and discovers the Elder Dragon War unfolding, and he ends up disrupting a battle on Jamura, which is not their home continent, by the way. He disrupts a battle between Arcades Saboth and Bolus's forces. Arcades uses that time to retreat. Bolus truly believed his brother had been killed by a mortal mage's disintegration spell, and is like relieved to see his brother, but he's still very manipulative, you know, it's not the it's not the happiest reunion. It is the most vain reunion <laughs> you could possibly imagine. Bolus takes Ugin back to the birth mountain and Ugin is like, wait, wasn't there a temple here? And Bolas is like, yeah, a while ago. But I've decided that the mountain's only worthy of dragons, so I kicked all the humans off, and now they have forts guarding the mountain all around the base. And Bolas is like, oh, Ugin, my brother, I thought you were dead. I've missed you so much. How great to see you again. Haven't I been doing a good job? <laughs> look, how, look at all the amazing things I've done. And Ugin's like, Ugin looks around and then, it's a world ravaged the entire plane, which Dominaria is not a small plane. The entire plane is ravaged by war, and Ugin's just like, holy crap, my brother's a psychopath. <laughs> yes, that is a very accurate retelling of that. So Ugin tries to describe to Bolas why none of this matters, and this is all, like, petty, but he ends up pissing Bolas off because he essentially compares the pettiness to that warlord that killed their sister, Moravia Saul, all those years ago. We also learned that all those years ago was between four and 5,000 years, which is interesting, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Bolas does not take it well, and Ugin ends up leaving the plane again, planes walking away, 
leaving his brother behind, supposedly for good this time. This was, I think, my favorite moment in this story, because it mirrors an earlier moment from an earlier story. Back when Ugin and Bolas first came across Bevictus and a couple other dragons and got the snot meat out of them, Bolas says, Oh, Ugin, guess what? There might be lands across the ocean that might even have other dragons on them. How crazy is that? And Ugin scoffs and goes, Wait, you didn't know that? And that little tiny planar moment gets reimagined here. Except Bolas is saying, look how much I have conquered. I am the greatest ruler on this whole world. And Ugin says, wait, you don't know that there's like other worlds out there and you're really just like the king of a little anthill? It's just so well explains Ugin's and Bolas's worldviews. How Bolas warps everything around himself so that whatever is at the extent of Bolas's mindset is all that there is. He's so egocentric, he can't imagine things beyond his own experience and reality. Whereas Ugin is so enamored and inspired by the vastness of existence that the smallness of being the runt of the litter on Dominaria fuels his curiosity and sense of exploration and open-mindedness towards the reality of multiple worlds. And they're just so perfect foils for each other and there are so many moments in these stories that get reimagined as these characters grow in wisdom in Ugin's case and in violence in Bolas's case and it was just fantastic to see that at the end of the day they're just so fundamentally different and they're never gonna see eye to eye and they're just never going to understand each other that has been just baked into their personality since birth we're seeing the rift between them grow larger and larger and larger, and hopefully in the next two stories we find out, like, an official start of the Ugin Bolas kill each other rivalry, because we know that's where it's headed, and we're just seeing that develop step by step. It's after this really great moment that we get another really great moment. I mean, really, my favorite moment was this next part. Naiva wakes up, comes out of the hedron, Yasova comes down the mountain, sees Naiva there, and asks, what happened? Why didn't she and Baisha stay in the cave? Naiva describes to Yasova the visions that she had received while inside, and Yasova believes that this must be what she's been led to, to receive these visions. Yasova goes into the hedron, Naiva is left on her own, starts to head back up the mountain, and is confronted by the woman that Feck meant earlier. What's important here is that the woman is pregnant, but also that something seems very off about her. The pregnant woman, Naiva notices, doesn't really seem to be there, and she recalls someone mentioning people having the ability to use illusions to make you think something's there that isn't. So Naiva, being a skilled hunter, notices that this woman, her feet aren't really touching the ground. And so she confronts the pregnant woman, and you get this moment of like pure, awesome, visceral terror that we don't usually get with Nicol Bolas. You know, we get scene chewing and he's blowing everything up and he's, yeah, a big scary dragon, but we don't get this kind of like personal terror from him almost ever. Like this is one of the creepiest scenes with Nicol Bolas ever as the pregnant woman reveals herself to be Nicol Bolas and completely freezes Naiva. Naiva can't do anything about it. She is just stuck there watching in horror as Nicol Bolas basically erupts or twists inside out back into this giant dragon from this creepy pregnant woman. It is such a great moment of dread as, I mean, we all knew it was Bolas, but it was such a great moment of dread from Naiva's point of view. Can I read the passage? Because it's really creepy. Do it. Do it. Viscerally disgusting. The pregnant woman's laughter filled the canyon echoing off its high walls until Naiva fell to her knees and, dropping her spear, clapped her hands over her ears. The laughter cracked as the woman's smile widened, curling back around her head, mouth splitting as if cut by a blade to expose her throat, lips peeling away to consume her head and then her shoulders, 
and then she turned inside out in a horrific distortion of birth. But what emerged from the melting body of the woman twisted and stretched, growing as voraciously as if this new being wished to consume the very heavens. It is just like this amazingly creepy piece, and Kate Elliot has honestly been knocking this whole story out of the park. And what probably helps is, similar to back in the day, the novels that were the least connected to the ongoing story, meaning they had the least constraints, generally had, you know, the better story going along with them. Not always, but it was nice to see her having the freedom to develop this Tarkir side story. And from the characterization side, at least, I can definitely see how worthwhile it is, while I was very, very unsure of it much earlier. Yeah, I talked a little bit with her on Twitter about this exact scene as, you know, the intent to be, like, we've seen a lot of Nicol Bolas grandstanding and environmental destruction, but what we haven't seen are these very intimate moments of horror as this millennia-old Elder Dragon Archmage Planeswalker asswipe gets to actually terrify people. And, you know, Kate mentioned that it was very much her intent to make that happen in this sequence, and success! <laughs> Another cool detail at the end of this was that a gleaming egg-shaped gem floated between the horns, turning slowly, mesmerizing. We have never known what the little egg between Bolas's horns does but maybe it aids in his mental powers and mind manipulations which would be neat and would explain why he's so much better at those things as a planeswalker than he was as a creature in the rest of the flashback stories so at the end of the flashback bolus reveals that he believes ugin is alive and that's why he's returned so let's talk about this week's story so the first thing that's interesting is Bolas sets the, this confrontation with Ugin as four to 5,000 years after the original uh, when Ugin sparked, which was within a human lifetime of their birth. The Dominaria art book gives us the date of minus 20,000 AR as being like the birth of the dragons. If this is 5,000 years later and the Elder Dragon War is still raging, it means the Primevals and the Numena have already, like, come and gone, both of them. So we speculated a bit previously about how the Numena, these ancient powerful wizards who stole the Primeval Dragon's powers, might have been some of the wizards that were flocking to the various dragons. Because it would make sense, right? To steal a dragon's power, you gotta learn dragon magic. But do we think that the Primevals and their time have come and gone already while the elder dragons were locked in war with one another? Or do you think maybe that minus 20,000 AR isn't exactly accurate and maybe we're still before minus 17,000 AR when the uh, primevals were thrown down? You didn't like my explanation for this in our DMs? Tell everyone what your explanation was. Which was that Bolas had only gotten that 5,000 year figure from an Ixalani planeswalker. And since every four months on Ixalan is two weeks no, on Dominaria, no. we get like point, point 0.16 Don't or something. Or 0.6. Yeah, maybe he got it from a math pirate. I think ultimately it doesn't matter all that much. But it would be interesting to see if they had actually thought through that number more than a large time figure. But my bet is just it's a large time figure that they needed to. The difference between negative 22,000 AR and negative 20,000 AR, when almost nothing happens for like tens of thousands of years afterwards, is, is pretty minimal. Like, I'm not going to be mad at that. It's also mentioned when Ugin returns to Dominaria and breaks up this battle that there are a bunch of lesser dragons. So it's possible that the primevals are just the children of the Elder Dragons, and they were around at the same time and fighting in the Elder Dragon War at the same time, and that the Numina were wizards and sorcerers who had come to power during this war by learning dragon magic and had helped put down other dragons in warring factions. And it's not like ancient evil wizard gods are going to lie, right? <laughs> but yeah, ultimately, I mean, 
this era in Dominarian history is known as the Mytho-Histories, and the dates are all real rough. And it's not like there's a whole lot tied to specific dates, and there's lots of wiggle room and lots of estimates. These are all big round numbers, because no one wants to actually do complicated math. There's a lot to fudge here, and that's fine. So do we think this was the end of the Elder Dragon War? Or do we think there's more to come there? Because if this timeline's accurate, we're also pushing up to the first Planeswalker duel on Dominaria, which was between Bolas and the Demonic Leviathan Planeswalker. I think it's approaching. The piece of fanon that Nicol Bolas ignited during the Elder Dragon War will be actualized in the story, and he will ignite in some kind of not bitter despite, but in spite of Ugin, who has already boasted his Planeswalker status. We'll see how that exactly goes, but I'm pretty sure that would conclusively end the war if a Planeswalker was suddenly in charge of a whole bunch of dragon killers still. Well, why even bother with dragon killers if you're a Planeswalker at that point? It's pretty fair that if Bolas ascends during the war that it's going to be over pretty quickly. And he's going to start asserting his power very quickly, which is probably what brings on that fight with the Demonic Leviathan. Or he just leaves, too. I mean, we saw what happened with his first civilization. He's just kind of, like, done with them. You know, he's a little bit like a cat. As soon as he's, as soon as he's no longer interested in them, he's happy to just leave. So he would agree with Ugin that, you know, Dominaria is just a speck. There are some... Interesting timeline considerations when you think about when Bolas shows back up on Dominaria. He could have been gone for a really long time beforehand, been locked out during the Shard maybe, and come back to find all his siblings dead, and just takes over a little sliver to occupy some of his time, for old time's sake. He is also the instigator of the sword. If he ascends and planes walks away, maybe the war just ends because he's not there and the other elder dragons are like, okay, we're done. Here's the important bit. Bolas believes, at least, that Ugin is alive at the end of the story. That messes up a whole lot of timeline stuff. Yeah. As of Tarkir block, we were kind of informally promised that no planeswalkers had visited Tarkir between, you know, Ugin falling, Sarkin returning, and Soren's visit later on in the Dragons of Tarkir timeline or the cons of Tarkir timeline, alternatively. The issue is that it's kind of necessary for any of the action at the eye that we knew from how long ago. Yeah, basically the gist of the problem is everything that we saw outside of Tarkir has to happen exactly the way we saw it both ways. Yes, which means there's a missing visit or two in either alternate timeline or whatever alternate timelines they want to establish here based on their teasing of that kind of factor thus far. In Enter the Eldrazi, Sarkin is explicitly told by Bolas in the Meditation Realm that Ugin is dead, so regardless of what happens here, Ugin has to be believed to be dead by Bolas, and Bolas has to have left Tarkir with that confident in his mind despite having returned pretty shortly after, within a human lifetime, within Yasova's lifetime, to say that Ugin's not dead, which poses the question of why even visit? Why even bring Bolas's doubt into the question when it was working perfectly fine in the timeline otherwise? Bolas being aware of Ugin's death or life has been a little bit contested thus far. Fate Reforged, we established that Ugin was alive but comatose, and that Bolas didn't know that Ugin was still alive and that was going to be the secret factor going forward was that Ugin was this concealed counter threat to Bolas. The Amonkhet art book had a very, very poorly worded section that many, including myself, believed to have said that Bolas knew that Ugin was alive now in the present on Amonkhet. Bolas was aware of that fact, but it turned out to just be like, not ideal writing, and it was dismissed by a creative team member. But then, now we're here, where Bolas has visited Tarkir in the in between years, and we're kind of stuck 
the point is why if Ugin is going to be a concealed threat for any kind of Bolas finale coming up, why let him know that Ugin might be able to survive past death? I mean, he's already done it two times now. It's not going to be that much of a surprise if he's doing it a third time on Ravnica and he just shows up <laughs> and is like, surprise, I'm alive. And he's like, well, once I thought you were killed by a mortal mage. And once I thought I killed you, but I didn't kill you, but I might have killed you. <laughs> and now you're here. This isn't really surprising to me at all. I think the end game is Bolas has to be convinced that Ugin is dead. But what is what in the event that he's not? I have no idea. Uh, they'll have to figure that out. All I know is that Fate Reforged was a mistake. It was a choice. <laughs> And if Bolas is here to kill Ugin, we know that doesn't happen, and we've got an Atarka Huntress standing in his way right now, so how's that gonna actually <laughs> succeed? Like, there's just a lot of questions about how this story is gonna end. We've got two more episodes left in Chronicle of Bolas, and I would be fine just getting them right now so I can read <laughs> it and be done with it, because... It's very, very good, and I want to know how it all goes down. Let's move on to our final thoughts. So for me, all I wanted to mention is don't think I've forgotten about Doretti on Kaladesh, because I haven't. <laughs> That's all I've got. That's okay, because Doretti never forgets either. I saw somebody had edited on the MTG wiki that one of his planes visited was Kaladesh, and it immediately started a discussion of where that <laughs> came from. And I was like... I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. What about with a 20-foot pole? The canonicity of a poster that nobody at Wizards seems to have recognized officially in any kind of sense, but is still mass market available, is confusing at best. Andrew, last thoughts. This week's story had a fantastic moment that think a lot of writers take for granted and that's the actual visual presentation of your story it's easy to get wrapped up in what the words are and how they flow and things like that but the actual pictographical presentation of your story is another tool in a writer's arsenal to make storytelling work one of the things kate elliott's done in this story is use italics to signify Bolas's mental manipulations, to look inside the heads of the people whose thoughts he is warping. So far, we've only seen this happen in the flashbacks, where he's manipulated brothers into fighting each other, he's manipulated dragons into fighting each other. But this story, and this was the big hint that Bolas is for real, the foreshadowing that this pregnant woman in a cave is not who you think she is. Niva has italicized thoughts of jealousy. There's a sentence where she thinks, Grandmother loves her better than she loves you. You can leave her. No one will miss her. And then Grandmother will love you more. And she says, The thought nagged. She took a step away toward the track. Another step. And her thoughts continue. You have a greater destiny. You will become the most magnificent hunter known to your people. It will be easy once you no longer have her to burden you. And this is Bolas twisting her thoughts to try and essentially kill Baisha and leave her behind. And it's just so great to see that set up through the flashback stories in previous episodes and then bridge it into the Tarkir frame story here because it's a convention that we were taught about and now is used as foreshadowing in this story because she does confront Bolas in the flash at the end. It's stuff like this that is making me love this story so much. Kate has used that visual representation of the italics as a motif. She has used a lot of twin relationship trope space as scaffolding to build Ugin and Bolas' characters in really deep and nuanced and fulfilling ways. She's paralleled so much of the attitudes and actions between the flashbacks and the frame stories, which is great because she's trying to tell two parallel narratives here, which can be confusing if you don't very explicitly link things. Just everything about Chronicle of Bolas from 
the craft of a writer has been top-notch, and Kate Elliott has just been phenomenal in this. And this is someone coming in from outside Wizards and taking Magic's multiverse and the characters and executing on that as well as anybody has done in Magic history. Do you think that'll continue on into Ravnica's story? Well, will we get any italicized mind control scenes? That's up to whoever writes Ravnica's story. Whoever's writing it is probably writing it right now and may not be reading Kate's story. So, yeah, yeah I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't count on it, but it would be pretty cool if it was connected back. It also depends how Ravnica's story is told and how much Bolas factors into it. And if the same person is writing all three sets, we don't know about what's yeah. going on there, so... Because we know at least the first two sets are going to be focused on guilds, and then the third set kind of departs from the guilds for the actual showdown. Yeah, we don't know very much about anything that's happening after Commander 2018. But with that, we do know about one thing, and why don't I pass it to you, Carrie, for your final thoughts? I've spoken about it on Twitter, if you follow me there, but... I am done with magic. Um, I am pretty fulfilled in what I've been able to research and kind of help people out with so far, but I don't really have a place for myself in the community anymore, and I don't enjoy it that much, frankly. The thing that kind of sparked this was kind of a dead silence of communication for quite a few days where... There had been concerns brought up regarding Nick Kelman's authorship of the story and what limited publishing history he has includes a touchy subject matter that I won't get into fully here. There are plenty of threads available on that. The short version is their silence on that has kind of brought to my mind all of the instances that we've waited for any comment on Wizards for crises moments and how poorly... They work to protect any kind of high-ranking Vorthos. I mean, Christine Sprinkle, probably the most mainstream one that we've gotten in Magic's history, was a very famous cosplayer, and they failed to protect her for years against a harassment campaign that was, like I said, for years. I just don't enjoy that. That's the simple answer. Many other people do. Many other people will. But... I'd feel morally opposed to them having no comment on this matter for as long as they have, and their kind of silence from the community team altogether. It, other people have brought up these concerns, but it is a matter of nobody feels hurt in the community. Nobody has felt hurt in the community for a long time. There are serious concerns about the safety of community managers who interact in this community as a result of targeted harassment. So I'm going to go places that I enjoy. This doesn't leave the cast stranded or anything. We are replacing me with at least one other co-host. Yeah, we have a handful of carry clones that we can tap into if need be. So The truth is that Jay and Andrew, as soon as I told them that I was leaving the cast, they were like, Carrie, you're so goddamn funny that we need <laughs> at least a couple people to replace you. And so... They're working very, very hard to um, get some funny, funny replacements for me. But honestly, I enjoyed bringing a little bit of brevity and humor to the cast, and I've enjoyed my time on it. But I am following through to the end of Magic 2019 story, which is two more episodes. And then from there, we will be passing it off. I think we would want to say that both Andrew and I fully support Carrie. If they want to come back at any point, they are welcome to, but I really respect the decision to walk away when you're done, rather than let investment of so much time continue to weigh you down for something that is not something you're continuing to enjoy at this point. I've done a lot of research that I'm passing off to Andrew, Jay, and other future hosts. I had a lot of fun, but most of the people that I know at Wizards, frankly, have left the company for other positions, and I admire their work in these other companies, and I feel like it is my time to move on as a fan of this. Well, thank you, Carrie. I enjoy the cast, and I hope that we get a million subscribers. 
yeah, I hope that you guys get a million <laughs> subscribers. I hope that I'm able to enjoy Magic again as much as I have in the past, and that the community and the community management improves to the point where I actually feel comfortable working with Magic again. So, there you go. I know I say so there you go with every statement, but, like, that's how I just pass things off. Been a good friend, a great Vorthos, invaluable member of the community. This cast could not exist without your research. It's certain that I think Jay and my Vorthos careers could not have existed at such a level without your research and your friendship. I realized when I was first talking to you after you were describing this, I'm like, wait a second, Carrie's not dying. Uh, Carrie's still going to be our friend, but they're just not interested in magic anymore. Look, I've seen enough cop movies that as soon as you announce that your retirement day is coming up, that's when you get... That's when I get offed. Just as Carrie will be departing our podcast, a lot of Patreon supporters are departing podcast across their whole platform because they really screwed crap up with their payment methods recently. (laughs) I didn't read a whole bunch into it, but apparently they moved the company that processes their payments to the UK. So it sets up all these red flags with people who pay by credit cards because now they're getting charges from a whole different country than before. It's just a whole mess. But if you have PayPal or if you would like to talk to your bank and make sure that they're not putting a hold on your credit cards and would like to contribute to the Vorthos cast and help us support the show and keep it running, you can donate at www.patreon.com slash thevorthoscast. Any level donation you give us gets you access to our Vorthos cast Discord server, where a bunch of Vorthoses like you and me are discussing magic story, magic gameplay, all sorts of crazy stuff. There was a discussion of Orochi snake milk <laughs> recently. If, if that's your kind of thing, thanks for that, Zach. <laughs> um, it gets weird and fun sometimes, and that's just the beauty of the magic community. So if you would like to support our show, we greatly appreciate it. This has been the Vorthos Cast. Thanks for listening.